0: and all God's people together said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you team for leading us musically this morning. We'll get to sing some more before we're done. This is Christmas after all, and what is Christmas without some singing and without some carols? um, How has Christmas been for you this year? Now, the number of people in this room, I imagine, we'd be here all day trying to get the answers to that, because it's probably been a lot of things to a lot of us. Uh, as the old song says, "There is, uh, in some ways, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year." That's true for some of us. Uh, maybe, like me, you really look forward to the Christmas season. In general, I love Christmas not only because of the themes of the birth of God's Son that it allows me to preach in church, but even just personally and. And with my family, there is so much of the Christmas time of year um, that kind of seems like it's on overdrive this year, this, this, this season of the year. You know, there's lights everywhere, which is really nice when it gets dark at like 2.30. <laughs> so, I mean, there's all kinds of light displays. Um, art is everywhere. Have you noticed that at Christmas time? And I, I love that, the kind of music and the, and the performances that are going on all the time. There's so much good art and culture Uh, Just this morning, uh, my wife put on the radio a live broadcast from King's College in Cambridge, England. They're having their Christmas Eve service. It's already evening there, but it was like 7 o'clock in the morning here. And there's this, they they live broadcast this thing all around the world, and we're listening into this just glorious uh, choirs singing in this huge cathedral with the organ music playing and scripture being read in between songs. Uh, Just beautiful, artistically. You don't get to do that all the time. There's art, there's family, there's food. Uh, That's always a good thing. There's giving, many, many other good things that I've enjoyed already this Christmas. I hope you have too. Of course, we also recognize that um, Christmas is also, in some cases, not the most wonderful time of the year for many of us. Sometimes it can be one of the more terrible times of the year. It's when loss gets magnified. And some of the painful things in life that are sort of always there, and we're, we know about them, but you know, you, you find your, your coping mechanisms in, in your normal daily routines, and you get through life, and, and it's not that you never think about the painful things, but you find a way to get through a typical day and a typical week without being all caught up in some of your own losses, and then Christmas comes along and just wrecks all of those routines. The loss gets really, really hard to ignore this time of year. And I have to admit, I've um, been, had quite a bit of that weighed on me um, lately. I, I kind of feel, as much as I've enjoyed these last few weeks, personally, I kind of feel a little bit this morning like I'm sort of skidding to a screeching halt into the Christmas season. Um, I've had an intense schedule. A lot of you have had. Got a cold. That's real exciting. Um, by the way, I think I'm mostly over it, but I won't be offended if you don't want to come shake my hand after the service. We're good. Um, Tons of things to celebrate, but you know what? There's also many, many examples of intense pain taking place in the lives of people right here in our church. People that I know and, and I love, and they're facing some of their first Christmases with new losses or kind of having the, the scabs ripped off of old ones and, and families that can't necessarily be together at Christmas because of things that have happened that they weren't anticipating or, or Christmases that will have one or more fewer people this year. And I ache for that, you know? So, how about you? How's Christmas been? Whether things are looking up for you, or whether you can't wait for the holidays to end, or anywhere in between, which is probably where most of us live, somewhere in between, today's text is for us. It's for me and for you. It's about God's comfort at Jesus' birth. If you've got your Bibles open uh, to Luke chapter 2, we're going to read there. If not, I want to encourage you to open them there. Feel free to use the Bible in the rack in the pew in front of you if you don't have one with you. Jordan read this morning's text earlier from Luke chapter 2. It's one of several scenes recorded of the responses that people had to the birth of Christ. This one in particular is the response of a man named Simeon. And in verse 25, it it identifies him. We don't really know anything else about him. He makes this brief appearance here in the Bible, and then he disappears from the pages of Scripture, and we never hear from him again. All we know about him is what's kind of introduced for us in verse 25. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and he's described as someone who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's an important phrase. Consolation means comfort. He was waiting for the comfort of Israel. We'll talk about what that means in a second. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, before we go on into this man's story, There's already a lot been said just in identifying who he is. The consolation of Israel was sort of a technical term for anybody who knew the Bible uh, back in the first century. That may or may not mean anything to us today in the 21st century, but, but Jewish people like Simeon alive in the first century would have known exactly what that was referring to. It was a prophetic promise from God that he would care for, provide comfort for, and save his people. For example, in Isaiah chapter 41, God says, listen to me. Sorry, I've got my wrong text there. Isaiah chapter 51. <laughs> listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. By the way, remember how Simeon was identified? A righteous man. He's one of these people who's seeking the Lord. He's, he's waiting for God to show up And make things right. And here's the promise from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 51. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one man when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, He comforts all her waste places, He makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. God offers this comfort to his people. He says to them, listen, I want you to realize I've already been faithful to you because when you guys started, you were just one guy, just Abraham. And now you look around and there's like thousands of you everywhere. I've already taken care of you. But here's something better. He says, I'm going to take care of you yet again. Your your desolate places will be like Eden, and your deserts will become like a garden of the Lord. It's a pretty powerful promise, is it not? How many of us have desolate places in our lives that we would love to see God come down and turn into an overflowing garden? That was what he had promised them. That was the consolation of Israel. Comfort, he said to my people. Comfort, because I'm going to make it right. Of course, the Jewish people at the time had been in a pretty bad way for quite a while. They had been conquered by foreign powers. They had been exiled. They weren't even living in their homeland. They were uh, functioning as slaves to an invader that had overpowered them. Life was pretty ugly. And God says, it's going to get better. I've not forgotten you. And he goes on to say that he's going to send A savior. There's going to be a specific person to come. That's where the comfort comes from. So that's the consolation of Israel. God is going to send a savior and God gives this message to those who are waiting for it. Waiting for it. I mean, so far the message in Isaiah 51 is all good and well. But by the time Jesus is born and this guy Simeon is described as waiting for the consolation of Israel, it was 700 years, give or take, after God promised to help his people. 700 years is a long time. And people waited and waited, and over time, they just got jaded. (laughs) Because, yeah, yeah, right, some prophet once said that it was all going to get better, but 700 years, let's face it, there comes a point where you say, this is reality. It's not getting any better. And they became jaded. Most of the Jews in Simeon's day were jaded, Some of them still waited for this promise. It was to them that God had a special message. It was to those who are pursuing the Lord that he addressed the promise in Isaiah. And it was to this man who waited, verse 26 says, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That means the Lord's Savior. That means the guy that God promised to send 700 years ago, friend, you're not going to die before you see him born. Whoa, 700 years of silence, and I'm finally going to get to see the promise? Why was this blessing conferred on him to get to know that? Only because he was one who waited. And there's a principle here that I think kind of, I want us to see because it's sort of in the background of everything else we see in this, this narrative. The principle is that God's revealed promises are enjoyed by those who trust God. It's those who trust him that see his revealed promises. Those that get jaded and walk away are ultimately going to miss out. The first thing this man Simeon tells us is that the joy of ultimate comfort is available to those who trust God. This is the biblical message of faith. If we put our trust in him, God says you will not be disappointed. So if you've got desolate places in your life, God's got an answer. Will you trust Him? With that question in mind, let's move on in the story because as we saw in Isaiah, the Old Testament, this this was a promise of, of comfort for Israel, for the ancient Jewish people, which is, I guess, good for them if God went to one particular ethnic group And promised to take care of them, if he really did that, well, then that's, you know, good for them. But what about for the rest of us, most of whom aren't Jewish? That's not necessarily very helpful to us. But as it turns out, it is helpful to us. Look how Simeon responds. We'll pick up the story we left off, verse 27. So he came in the Spirit to the temple, which coincidentally, in other words, providentially, was the same moment that Mary and Joseph were taking the newborn baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, which was the custom for Jewish parents in the day. He came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up, Simeon got to hold Jesus, takes him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, notice what he says in these next two verses that you have prepared in the presence of all people. All peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's non Jewish people, as well as for glory for your people Israel. That's the Jewish people. Now, A first-time reader of the Bible would have every right to kind of pause at this moment and say, what is going on here? We saw the promises in Isaiah 700 years beforehand that were referred to, and they were addressed specifically to the Jewish people. But now here's Simeon saying, yay, these promises are going to get fulfilled, and it's not just for us Jewish people. It's for everybody, he says, you've prepared uh, your salvation in the presence of all peoples. And the fact that that is plural calls out the fact that it's referring to different people groups. We would say today, different ethnic groups. All people groups in the world are getting to see the salvation that God is presenting in the birth of Jesus. This isn't just for Jewish people, Simeon is saying. This is for everyone. How does Simeon know that? Well, he knows that because he's read his Bible, and he knows its message We can summarize the answer to that question really in the answer to three simple questions. Three Christmas questions, if you will, and then there's really a fourth, hence I've titled this morning, Four Christmas Questions. To understand what Simeon is seeing and what the Bible is trying to get us to see, four simple questions come about. First of all, what is God doing? A very straightforward question. What is God doing? What is the hope to which God's people have always looked and which the Bible is calling us still to look. What God is doing is, in a phrase, He's fixing the broken world. And He's fixing it for everybody. He's fixing it for everybody. Clear back at the beginning of the Bible, long before even Isaiah's time, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham that all peoples, there's our word again, all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnic groups, everybody will be blessed Through one of your descendants, Abraham, that's the Messiah, the one that I'm going to send. I will send a Savior for the whole world. That's how the Bible starts. And so as the promise was continually made to Israel, it was always made to all people. So God is going to fix what's wrong with the world for everybody. That sounds pretty good. How's he going to pull that off? Great question. That's our second question. How's he going to do this? How is this one person going to fix everything that's wrong with the world? God himself became man. That's the Christmas miracle. Crossing an unimaginably vast chasm, leaving heaven's throne, emptying himself, the Bible says, and taking on limited, weak, finite, vulnerable humanity. He crossed a divide to reach you and I that is beyond our comprehension. Just soak in that for a bit this Christmas. And he did that to accomplish two things, basically. First, to live the perfectly righteous life before God the Father that even the very best of us people can't manage to pull off. And then secondly, to die a sinner's death on a Roman cross, even though he wasn't a sinner. And he does both of these things in our place. This is the essential message of the Bible, it's summarized very succinctly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a little bit later in the New Testament. For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's God the Son, Jesus. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's a lot of ideas packed into one simple sentence. You see what's being said there? There's like this divine exchange. He lives the perfectly righteous life before God. You and I should live but fail to live. But the key is he does it in our place for us. And then he dies the sinner's death on the cross that you and I deserve to die. Even though he was not a sinner. And he also does that In our place. He takes our sins penalty. He gives us his righteousness. And in that way, we can become the righteousness of God, the Bible says. We stand before God, forgiven people. We can now be reunited with him. You see, what broke the world was sin. If God's going to fix the world, he has to take care of sin. This is how he does it. This is what his arrival on that first Christmas morning signified. But that leads us to the third and maybe in some ways, most important question, how is that hope? How is that comfort for you and me? Is that just theological Bible language for your religious, the kind of religious box of your life? How does that affect who we are right now? Is there hope at Christmas? I want to suggest that there certainly is. The coming of Jesus split history in two not just in the terms of the way we date our calendars, although it's done that as well in the West, but even more importantly, it's divided history into two different ages, the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. The Bible language for that is the former days and the latter days. We are living in the latter days right now. We have been for 2,000 years because you and I have the privilege of looking back on seeing God fulfill a promise that he had made to people hundreds of years before, and they just had to look forward to and trust him to fulfill it. But now we look back. It's totally different. We see the promise fulfilled, and therefore, we are able to fully understand more clearly what it means. The death Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is genuine comfort and hope in so many ways. For the sake of time, I'm going to give us four of the most critical and important ones in the Bible. There are more than this, but hopefully this will give us plenty of reason to find hope in Jesus this Christmas. First, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that my sins, no matter how heinous, can be forgiven in Christ. Again, from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. God says to his people, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There is no stain that can outpower God's bleach, But you know what? We often think that there is, don't we? We at least feel that there is, even if we know in our heads that there might not be. I'm almost certain that in a room this size, many of us are here thinking some version of the following. God might indeed forgive some people. That I have no problem believing. But he'd never forgive what I've done. I'm... Hopeless. I'm jaded. I'm done. I'm beyond redemption. Friends, if that's you, would you allow me to, with grace, give you the best news of the day and tell you on the authority of the Bible, you're wrong. You're wrong. The language in Isaiah is chosen very carefully. It's not only a metaphor and a word picture, it's, it's made for emphasis. God isn't just saying, I forgive sinners kind of in general, or I forgive some sinners as long as they're not too gosh-awful bad. Your sins could be red as the deepest scarlet. They will be white as snow as if they never existed. The message is clear. My sins, no matter how heinous, can be forgiven in Christ. If you feel like you are trapped in a besetting sin, Maybe you don't even know it. Everybody else around you sees it. You won't admit your alcoholism, but everybody else around you sees it. You won't admit the disdain and the arrogance that with which you treat other people, but everybody else around you sees it. Maybe we don't even, we're sort of still in denial of our own sin. Or maybe you know your sin. Maybe you know it clearly. I know about my porn addictions. I know about the way I detest the people around me and, and treat them poorly. And that's the problem. I can't, I can't stop. I can't just make myself stop being angry or stop being enslaved to these things. Why would God ever forgive me? Because Jesus came. That's the Bible's answer. So when we look at that baby in a manger, we see, among other things, the promise that no matter how heinous my sin is, it can be cleaned and forgiven that is what god offers to us in christ secondly the life death and resurrection of jesus means that my pain and suffering in life no matter how deep is accomplishing eternal good my pain no matter how deep is accomplishing eternal good none of it's wasted again later on the new testament second corinthians chapter four puts it this way Uh, addressing Christians who have placed their hope in Christ. It says, The light and momentary affliction that we are experiencing now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Again, the language of the Bible is very deliberate there. By calling the afflictions of this life light and momentary, the Apostle Paul, who was the one that originally wrote that verse, is not trying to make light of people's pain and suffering. You have a loved one die, you get stricken with a life-threatening disease, you you run into financial ruin, you have a a marriage or a family fall apart, you have people lie and cheat and steal and and, and harm you in so many different ways. There are so many heinous ways people can suffer in this life. How could he possibly call them light? And the answer is, in comparison to the glory that is being produced by them, they will be like nothing. Nothing. Those of you that are regulars here at our church have heard me sometimes refer back to the greatest cross-country race I ever ran as a high schooler. Uh, I wasn't much of an athlete beyond high school, so I have to like, go all the way back there to find my glory moments. <laughs> it was a league finals race as a sophomore. I actually beat a guy who went on to collegiate fame. <laughs> and uh, I won that race that day. And I've had like you know 30 years to soak in the pride of what I accomplished that day. I had to endure about 30 minutes of excruciating pain to accomplish it. (laughs) By the time I got done running, I literally couldn't walk. I had run so hard. I had to have friends prop me up for a few minutes until my body recovered itself. I'm not sure I've ever pushed myself that hard, and it hurt. But you know what? You forget the pain. Or, as so many mothers tell me, and I take it by faith, (laughs) childbirth can be compared to the same thing. Unbelievable pain. But the long haul, I've asked so many mothers, was it worth it? Yes. Yes. That, that's the idea here. You see, the, the promise is that whatever pain and suffering is endured in this life, whether it's a result of my own choices and my own sin, or whether it's a result of other people's sin against me messing up my life, or whether it's just a garden variety result of living a life in a broken world, where just bad things happen and people suffer and are hurt. As a Christian, I'm going to experience all of that in one measure or another. But none of it is wasted. That's the hope of the manger at Christmas. Because Jesus came, none of it is wasted. The God who, the Bible says, keeps every one of our tears in his bottle, sees it all, knows it all, cares about it and assures us that every moment of pain and suffering is achieving an eternal glory that will make the pain minuscule in comparison. That's what you have to look forward to. Nothing in my life is wasted. Is that hope? Friends, you're not going to find any greater hope anywhere else in this world. I'm confident of that. Third, not only does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus mean that my sins, no matter how heinous can be forgiven my pain, no matter how deep is accomplishing eternal good. But it also means that my whole life, no matter how small or limited, has eternal purpose. It has eternal purpose. Backing up just a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Bible says we have this treasure that is Jesus in jars of clay. It's like we we have this golden diamond, the Spirit of God in you if you're a Christian, but you carry it about in a life that's constantly broken, constantly messed up, constantly racked by sin and, and temptation and suffering and limitation and brokenness. But the point is that that shows that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. In other words, when I'm walking with Jesus, God uses even what I don't have to magnify what he does have. In fact, I am probably more effective in demonstrating the glory of God to the world around me when I have very little to bring to the table. I've had to remember that this week when a pastor skids into Christmas weekend. It's a big weekend and he's got no energy and his thoughts are fuzzy and he's gonna be rambling in the pulpit and everybody's gonna leave saying, I'm never coming back to that church again. Sorry, I'm just letting you in on the weird places my brain has been this week, right? And then I go, Matt, read your own stinking sermon, dude. (laughs) Right? I mean, can God do what he's gonna do through his word? Yes. Does he do it through broken people? Yes, the more broken you are, the better. Welcome to the Fellowship of the broken. The failures I own, the limitations I can't break free from, these don't define my worth in Christ, if you're a Christian. The smallest person is used by God to show off his love and to build his kingdom. It all matters. It all matters. Whatever you think you don't have or can't do, it all can be used for God. So the hope of the manger is that your life, no matter how limited or insignificant in your eyes, has eternal purpose. And one more. I've said there's more, but... We'll settle with these four. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that I am more fiercely and relentlessly loved than I ever dared dream. It might be possible. The end of Romans chapter 8 talks about the love of God, it begins by asking a question. Verse 35 of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, do bad things in my life mean that God doesn't love me, that God isn't there, that he isn't listening, that he doesn't care? No, that's not what it means. The passage goes on. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How sure can you be, no matter what is happening in life, of God's love for you? How can he be so sure? That, again, the Apostle Paul writing. Well, he answers that question for us a few verses earlier in verse 32. It's up on the screen for us. He can be so sure that God loves him because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's your answer. How could I know that God loves me? That's when I look at a manger and I see a baby who had no business being there. This is, this is God in human flesh. That's, that is so wrong at so many levels. He is so much greater than that, but he condescended to come down to our level because he loves us. And so regardless of what I'm feeling or experiencing in my life, the truth is I can be sure that I am more relentlessly and fiercely loved than I ever dared dream was possible because I see what God did. On Christmas morning, he gave his own son. It's the most precious thing he has. He wouldn't withhold any other good thing from me. He loves me. I know it because Jesus is there. And friends, these are all just down payments. We could go on if we had the time to talk about how how our forgiven sin now matures to a total holiness and freedom from corruption forever in heaven when he finally comes to take us home. How the weight of glory that my pain is producing now will be enjoyed and savored for all eternity when he comes to take us home. How the kingdom of God that my limitations are helping build now is the reality that I experience every day for the rest of eternity when he comes to take us home. And how the love that God so surely showed in Jesus' arrival matures into the interminable joy of seeing him face to face and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's the real hope. That's the comfort that people like Simeon saw in the first century. Which leads us to the fourth and final question. If that was hope for them, how is it hope for us? How do we respond? And that's the question I want to encourage us to think about for the remainder of this worship service and well into the rest of this Christmas Eve day throughout our Christmas Eve service this evening, which will focus on a larger portion of uh, the birth of Christ narratives, and we'll just let Scripture and music take us to the manger. Behind all of that, I want to encourage us with the question, How will we respond? Simeon's interaction with Mary and Joseph goes on, verse 33. His father and mother, Mary and Joseph, marveled at the things that were being said about Jesus. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. You know, as good a news as this is, a whole lot of people are going to just go straight down to the pit because of it. Some are going to rise to heaven they're going to respond differently to God's message of salvation. And he goes on and he says, he is a sign that is to be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, doubtless referring to the pain she would have as a mother at seeing her son sacrificed many years later on the cross. And so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You see, I I want to end back where we started. This promise of of, uh, salvation, God's fulfilled promises take place for those who are looking to God for those who trust God. Jesus' coming does not guarantee that any one of us will experience any of these blessings. God wants us to. But we experience them when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Acknowledge that He is God and we are not. That we are sinners in need of His cleansing and that His death on the cross substitutes for our sins. If you believe that, the Bible says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what makes you a Christian. And we've seen that repeated phrase this morning, that all of these things are in Christ. God has given us the greatest present in the world at Christmas. He's given us eternal life embodied in himself becoming man. Don't walk away from that gift because there's no better hope for you out there. I guarantee it. Come this morning to the manger. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, relying on his life and death and resurrection to pay for your sins, then I want to encourage you to pray a prayer to him that accepts him as Savior. If you're not 100% sure what that means or how to do that, I want to encourage you to talk with some of our elders and pastors after the service, or maybe with a friend or a family member who's a Christian and who brought you, they'll help you through it you can't make a more important decision. And that's where you can find great comfort this Christmas. If you have already embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, then let me suggest a couple of things for us. First of all, be on the lookout for those who haven't and extend the Savior's offer. Ask a simple question about the meaning of Christmas, about what they believe, about why they would or would not want to accept Christ. It's not about forcing a conversation no one wants to have. It's simply about putting an offer on the table that Jesus came through an incalculable distance to put on the table. Let's extend his love and his message of the gospel. And lastly, may I say, for those of us who are Christians this morning, bring every joy and every sorrow, every blessing and every pain to the manger this morning. And build your hope on the relentless love of God for you as shown in the coming of Christ into the world. Because that's Christmas. And that's worth celebrating. I'm going to ask the team to come back up. They're going to lead us in singing. I want to pray before they do and encourage you to join me in that prayer. Father, thank you so much for coming to be one of us and providing for us hope that we could never have without you. And what that what that says about you, the, the holiness, the extent to with, with which you were willing to go to, to expunge sin and pay the great cost, the love that led you to make that sacrifice in the first place. God, I pray that the reality of Christmas and your love for us in it would be real for so many today. I pray that you would help us to not only understand the message of Christmas, but to see it as true and beautiful and respond in the only way that is appropriate to respond, and that is by giving heart, soul, and mind to you. So even now, we pray that you would receive worship as in song, and throughout this day, as we spend time with friends and family and give gifts and read the Christmas story and eat food and do all the things we're going to do, Father God, may we do it in a way that our hearts are forever changed because you have made all the difference for us when you came as a man. God, we bless you for that.